From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Bruce Gellerman. The State of the Union and the State of the Environment. President Obama's address was a message of hope for some. For others, it failed to mention a major issue. This is what presidents do. They point the prow of the nation into the future. And he planted that flag out there very boldly. But it was quite disappointing that the president did not talk about climate change. But we do the president's message and prospects for clean energy. Also, the search for perhaps the most elusive particles in the universe. Neutrinos are really neat. They're chargeless. They're almost massless. You've actually got 10 million going through your thumb every second. They're really, really hard to detect. Looking for neutrinos deep beneath the Antarctic ice. And off the coast of California, we find elephant seals. (laughs) We'll have those stories and more just ahead here on Living on Earth, so stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Bruce Gellerman. He never said the words environment or climate, but at the top of his list were investing in the future and clean energy. President Obama made the pitch in his 2011 State of the Union address, and he wants to tap some deep pockets to pay for it. I'm asking Congress to eliminate the billions in taxpayer dollars we currently give to oil companies. I don't, know if, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but they're doing just fine on their own. So instead of subsidizing yesterday's energy, let's invest in tomorrow's. The president outlined ambitious goals for the future, and he wants to start right away. Tonight, I challenge you to join me in setting a new goal. By 2035, 80% of America's electricity will come from clean energy sources. Some folks want wind and solar. Others want nuclear, clean coal, and natural gas. To meet this goal, we will need them all. Joining me in the studio to discuss President Obama's address is Kevin Knobloch. He's president of the Union of Concerned Scientists. Mr. Knobloch, welcome. Uh, Hello, Steve. Also on the line is James Connaughton. He's executive vice president of corporate affairs for Constellation Energy. And for eight years, he headed the Council on Environmental Quality for President George W. Bush. Hello, sir. Hello. Good to talk to you again. Now, the president's goal of 80% clean energy by 2035 struck me as a, well, a very bold vision for the future of our energy makeup. Jim Connaughton, how did it strike you? I liked it, and I thought it was hitting some of the themes that should be responsive over time to Republicans. I liked it for its ambition, but also because it's reasonably ambitious. I'm at Constellation Energy. Our fleet currently is already at or on its way to meeting the goal today, so we know it can be done. The challenge of the goal is can you create a policy environment where it can be done cost-effectively? I also think that's possible, and that's where I think the themes matter. Basically, President Obama adopted the the all-of-the-above commentary that was really dominant in Republican circles. So he's reaching out. He's sending out common ground signals. You know, can we take the time necessary for folks to find that common ground? That's the open question. I'm hopeful. Kevin Knobloch, what about this all-of-the-above approach? First, what about the vision? And then this vision includes things like coal and nuclear that uh, you have questions about. 
Steve, I, I thought it was uh, it may have been the single most presidential moment in the speech. I mean, this this is what presidents do. They point the prow of the nation into the future. And he planted that flag out there very boldly. He also kind of uh, laid down the gauntlet a bit for the Congress to say, you may be a, a constituent for carbon capture and storage for nuclear natural gas, renewables. You, you need to be at the table and help us get there. It was all of the above with one very important exception, coal, in terms of burning coal as we traditionally would. Coal is such a harmful fuel between uh, respiratory disease, mercury poisoning, mountaintop removal, and global warming, soot, smog, and so on. It is a very costly fuel. We don't think of it that way because those costs are not captured typically in the cost of burning that lump of coal. That said, we rely on coal for 50% of our electricity nationally. It's not going to turn off tomorrow. The cleaner we can get it, the better. Jim Connaughton, what about clean coal? Coal today now can be very clean from the perspective of cutting the air pollution that people you know, are typically associate with ozone or with acid rain or the, you know, the type of air pollution that you know, harms asthmatics. On carbon dioxide, though, those controls actually increase the carbon dioxide emissions because it takes energy to run the pollution control equipment, ironically enough. And so I think the idea of a clean electricity standard would be to create the signal that if you can meet the standard, coal, you're still in. And I think that's the opportunity that the president's um, you know, sort of open-ended invitation created. And I think that's the right way to do it. So here's the question. How do you get to 80% clean energy in the next 25 years without a cap-and-trade program to price carbon and to send the market signals? This is a Jim Connaughton. There, there are actually many different ways to achieve a market-based policy outcome. Cap-and-trade is one of them. It's one that I personally prefer if it's done right. Prior proposals were not very well done. Uh, on the other hand, a clean electricity standard is also a market-based approach. Incentives are market-based approaches, as, is, as are carbon taxes or emission taxes. So there are many different ways to use a market-based approach that would be consistent even with conservative regulatory philosophy. And so I think the clean electricity standards are a pretty good other way of doing it. So, Kevin Knobloch, how do we get to this uh, 80% uh, clean energy portfolio without a cap-and-trade program? This clean energy standard, it's built on the, the enormous success of the 30 states that have adopted and implemented state renewable electricity standards. And uh, half of those states have gone back and increased their percentages because they were on such a strong track. There's a lot of renewables, a lot of clean energy in the pipeline that's going to come online in the years ahead. So this builds on that. And our analysis shows that we actually could get to 80%. Uh, if you continue the current levels of nuclear, the current levels of uh, hydropower, and uh, continuously evolving efficiency of our homes, our businesses, our vehicles, and uh, aggressive rollout of renewables, we think we can get there. Constellation Energy is a leading advocate for the development of new nuclear plants in the United States. Is it fair to say that, Jim Connaughton? And, and if it is, how do you do that without more subsidies from the federal government, from taxpayers? So uh, we have been a strong proponent of new nuclear, and we're one of four companies um, that were ready to go ahead and, and build one of the first new plants. Um, we ran into a policy brick wall, if you will, um, having to do with um, the way the Energy Bill of 2005 was implemented when it came to loan guarantees. And so the sector doesn't need subsidies in the sense that you need to appropriate taxpayer dollars and just give it to the sector. What the sector actually needs is just a backstop um, because these plants are so big and take so long to build. You know, these plants are about $10 billion or more each that none of us is big enough to carry it on our balance sheets. And so we, we need the government to provide a guarantee to help get the thing built. 
Kevin Knobloch? Well, certainly the, the problem of global warming is so overwhelming and proceeding at, at such an alarming pace that if the nuclear industry truly could step up and pick up a, a big share of the greenhouse gas reductions uh, and do it in, in a safe and cost-effective way, I think you would see a, a, a lot of support. You know, the, the real trick here is that this is a heavily subsidized industry by the American people. The legacy subsidies, it was basically built on the back of public subsidies, and now the industry is back at the table asking for a new round of subsidies. You know, it, we have to find a formula here where the nuclear industry can, in fact, uh, as I say, uh, pick up a bigger share of the clean energy load, but in a way that's sustainable, in a way that uh, there's a business plan that Wall Street would actually get uh, excited about and invest in. So in the President's State of the Union address, I didn't hear the word climate. I didn't hear the word environment. Last year, he mentioned the climate bill once and climate change twice. What's going on here? Jim Connaughton? Well, it's interesting you ask that because I, I pulled up some of President Bush's State of the Unions. And interestingly, in his last State of the Union, where he called for the big um, transportation mandates, uh, the fuel economy standards, and the renewable fuel standards, um, he explicitly did mention climate change. And so people should look to, you know, President Bush put it in the State of the Union. I would not be overly critical of President Obama for leaving it out. I actually think, I hope, and believe he was creating an opening that we've had such a fixation on carbon, which, by the way, is important, but we've had a fixation on to the exclusion of other important goals, such as improved air quality and public health and energy security and just good old-fashioned innovation and competitiveness. So I'd like to imagine that he was trying to create an opening to say, look, I don't need to sell you on fully buying into the climate agenda if you'll join with me in buying into the clean air, the energy security, and the competitiveness agenda, or any mix of those. And by the way, that's where the conversation needs to be anyway. Kevin Knobloch, we didn't hear climate or environment in this talk. Well, I, I appreciate the nuance that Jim's drawing, but it was quite disappointing that the president did not talk about climate change. What we've seen over the last couple of years uh, as, as we tried to legislate on this issue was a very cynical attack on climate science and climate scientists coming out of the fossil fuel industry, coming out of the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, the American Petroleum Institute, and elsewhere. And I feel it's important that the president help the American people understand how robust the body of climate science is, what the environmental, human health, uh, national security implications are for this country, uh, and economic considerations. And, and there's a story to be told there. Of course, a big theme of the State of the Union uh, address was the economy. And to, to cut the deficit, the president suggested we freeze annual domestic federal spending for the next five years. So how do we achieve the goals that we've talked about, the innovation, the expansion of, of renewable and clean forms of energy, electric cars, all that sort of thing, and keep federal spending flat? Kevin Knobloch? There, there are a lot of resources in, in, at the federal level in play, and uh, simply adding new dollars doesn't always uh, result in full benefit. So by actually freezing domestic spending, it does put pressure on, on those existing dollars to be more effective, to do more work. And so the president himself said, let's shift oil and gas subsidy money over to uh, cleaner energy uh, technologies. Uh, I think that's smart. And then the other way to do it is, is through performance standards, like renewable electricity standards, where you, you there's no taxpayer dollars in play, but you're requiring companies to step, step it up. And in, in the case of renewable standard, that then is a, a, a game plan, a map for investors to come into a space and invest in renewables because they know there'll be a market.
This is Jim. During the um, the Bush administration, the, the annual spending in terms of incentives and subsidies in the energy, clean energy space, uh, rose to a level of greater than forty billion dollars um, over eight years. President Obama has already doubled down on that. To his credit, I, I think that was great. Um, and so you're, you're working with a pretty big pot. So already, even with a freeze. So what I would do, and I think a real bold innovation by the president would be to take all of the existing pot of subsidies and put them all together, and then redistribute them on a performance basis based on an emission profile, and then I would add in the energy profile, you know, the higher energy content should get a higher amount of subsidy, and create a good old-fashioned competition. Now, clearly, by the way, that would move oil to the bottom of the list and a few others, but it would leave them in to innovate if they can find a way to change their profile. So I think that that would be a huge thing, and you get much more bang for the same amount of buck, and the bucks are big. It's time now to give the President of the United States a grade for his State of the Union address in connection with the environment and energy. Uh, Kevin Knobloch, how would you score him? I would give him a, a B-plus or an A-minus with, with the debit coming from uh, his omission of discussing global warming in a direct way with the American people. Jim Connaughton? Well, I'm going to reserve my grade and give him an incomplete because what I want to grade is the actual legislative proposal. Kevin Knobloch is president of the Union of Concerned Scientists, and James Connaughton is executive vice president of corporate affairs for Constellation Energy. Thank you both so much. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. Just ahead, big changes for the White House environmental team. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Bruce Gellerman. The president has thrown his weight behind an ambitious clean energy plan, but in the wake of the failed effort to get a bill through Congress last year to address climate change, a key White House official is stepping down. Carol Browner was appointed to the newly created post of energy and climate czar at the outset of the Obama administration. Now she's out, and the future of the position is unclear. Living on Earth's Mitra Taj has a report from Washington. When Carol Browner joined the White House to help the president broker a cap-and-trade deal in Congress, hopes for tough action on climate change were high. After all, Browner had served as Bill Clinton's EPA administrator for two terms and was a tireless advocate for keeping the planet cool. Here she is in 2006 as a private consultant commenting on George W. Bush's lack of a climate plan. This has been a passion of mine for many years, and I think the single most important thing we can do now is call on Congress to set a cap, a national cap on greenhouse gas emissions, and I'm disappointed this administration has not taken the lead. Browner ended up on the other end of that disappointment last year when she stood solemnly next to Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid to deliver the news that the fight for climate legislation was ending. There simply weren't enough votes. Now, obviously, everyone is disappointed that we do not yet have agreement on comprehensive legislation. Her departure is another reminder that tackling climate change is politically tough and that the president has other priorities. Eric Pooley is a deputy editor of Bloomberg Businessweek and the author of the book The Climate War. Despite all of Carol's hard work, the administration itself never threw its weight behind a specific bill. So yeah, is it another milestone along a sad road? I'd say yeah, it is kind of a mop-up action in the same way that Joe Lieberman leaving the Senate is another sign that a era has passed. And there was an opportunity to make real progress in that era, in my view, and we squandered that opportunity. Browner didn't get a climate bill, but she was key in negotiating new emission standards with automakers. But where some, like Pooley, see a loss, others in Congress see victory. There is no vacuum left behind by her departure. 
California Republican Congressman Daryl Issa is chair of the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee. He'd planned to use his authority to investigate Browner's involvement in the administration's environmental decision-making and block her authority as a czar. What we want to do as a committee is we want to end unconfirmed czars. We want to ensure that uh, people who control the taxpayer dollars and the authority of the president do so through a process of being named and confirmed by the Senate. The White House hasn't said whether someone might take Browner's place. And now that she's leaving, ISA says he wants to help Congress keep the EPA from regulating greenhouse gas emissions. Using the EPA's authority was the administration's backup plan in the absence of a climate bill. Eric Pooley says Browner might have been useful in blocking attacks against the agency. That's going to be a big battle. It's a defensive battle, and she chose not to stay around for that particular fight. While Browner prepares her exit, the spotlight is now on another star of the president's green team, Department of Energy Secretary Stephen Chu, to move the administration's clean energy goals forward. The president's State of the Union speech was sprinkled with references to efforts Chu will lead, and the thrust of the speech itself? Half a century ago, when the Soviets beat us into space with the launch of a satellite called Sputnik, had already been voiced by Secretary Chu last fall. On October 4th, 1957, Soviet Union launched a satellite, Sputnik. Chu's Sputnik moment speech, like the president's, also emphasized the need to invest in science and clean technology to get ahead in the world. And now it's up to members of Congress to determine whether they think it's the right moment. For Living on Earth, I'm Mitra Taj in Washington. Coming up, a massive lawsuit to protect endangered species could change farming as we know it. But first, this note on emerging science from Jessica Elise Smith. Researchers at the University of California, Los Angeles, are thinking big by building small. They're developing nanobatteries, the largest of which will be no bigger than a grain of salt. They will be tiny compared with the traditional ion batteries powering today's laptops and smartphones but they'll pack the same punch. To make them, researchers carefully spray the surfaces of nanowires with conductive material, which enable the flow of energy between electrodes. Scientists hope their work will create batteries to power electronic gadgets of the future. Shrinking the batteries will lighten the load of electronic devices, making them easier to carry. Their lightweight is one reason why the military is funding this study. Researchers expect to have a complete prototype in three years, But consumers will have to wait a bit longer before high-tech devices with nanobatteries are available commercially. At any rate, you could say UCLA scientists are leading the charge. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Jessica Elise Smith. In the IEEE Spectrum's documentary Antarctica, Life on the Ice, scientists search for neutrinos. These Tiny, tiny subatomic particles streak across the universe. They're among the most common things that exist, yet also among the most difficult to detect. In a unique effort to see neutrinos, engineers are now turning a cubic kilometer of ice under the South Pole into one of the oddest telescopes in the world. By spotting some of the countless neutrinos that pass through matter, this telescope is expected to help scientists understand cosmic mysteries, such as black holes, exploding stars, and dark matter. Glenn Zorpet visited Antarctica and took a look. How do you make a hole two and a half kilometers down into solid ice? 
you melt your way down. It takes two days and 20,000 gallons of hot water. Dennis Dillings showed me how it's done. That's our drill water for this project. So you actually use hot water to drill? Yes, we do. There's no metal bit. It's just no, a, no, no, you'll see that. Jets I, of hot water. We use 200 gallons a minute at, uh, at 90C, which is boiling at this environment, and we push it out at 1,000 pounds pressure out of a three-quarter inch nozzle. That equates out to the power of a Burlington locomotive, a big one at full power coming out that nozzle. That's why this drill will drill what it drill. Dillings is the drill manager for the company building the Ice Cube Observatory. So far, he's drilled 79 of these mile-and-a-half holes in a kilometer-square stretch of ice near the South Pole. He has seven more to go. Once a hole is drilled, technicians lower into it a string of 60 basketball-sized light detectors. By February of 2011, over 5,000 detectors will lie frozen in a billion tons of ice. They're going to look for the most elusive particles in the universe, neutrinos. Neutrinos are really neat. They're chargeless. They're almost massless. You've actually got 10 million going through your thumb every second. They're really, really hard to detect. Mark Krasberg is a physicist on the Ice Cube project. He explains that because neutrinos don't interact with anything, they're very hard to detect. But that same lack of interaction also means they can zip across vast stretches of the universe unimpeded. So, to astronomers, neutrinos are like minuscule messengers carrying news about exploding stars, baby black holes, and other violent events that occurred unimaginably far away and an unimaginably long time ago. Since neutrinos are chargeless, they go in a straight line through the universe. You basically, if you have a source, you just point back and you look in the, and then you say, tell an astronomer, what's at that spot in the sky? Neutrinos can also come from sources closer to home. In fact, Neutrinos coming from the center of our sun or our Milky Way galaxy could give physicists clues about the nature of dark matter, the mystery mass that pervades our universe, but about which nothing is known. But how do you detect particles that are almost undetectable? Well, the Ice Cube telescope is looking for the one-in-a-million neutrino that crashes into an atom of an ice molecule and creates another particle called a muon. As that muon shoots through the ice, it gives off blue light. In the pure, incredibly clear ice of the South Pole, that tiny bit of light can travel hundreds of feet, and then it can hit those basketball-sized light detectors. It's basically an inverse light bulb. It collects the light and it converts it into charge, and there's a computer on top of here, and the signals go to the surface. Researchers hope these ghostly particles will help them solve some of the biggest mysteries of the universe. And if they do, then one day this strange telescope under the ice might not seem so strange after all. Our story by IEEE Spectrum's Glenn Zorpet is from the documentary Antarctica, Life on the Ice. environmental organizations have launched a federal lawsuit designed to protect over 200 endangered species from commonly used pesticides. But if the suit is successful, it could have a profound effect on the nation's farmers and you. The Center for Biological Diversity and Pesticide Action Network charge that the U.S. EPA has violated the Endangered Species Act. 
The groups allege the EPA was required to consult with other federal agencies regarding the impacts of pesticides on threatened species, but never did. West Palm Beach attorney Keith Rizzardi has been following the federal lawsuit. He writes a blog about the Endangered Species Act. Mr. Rizzardi, welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks for having me. Now, we should say uh, that you're not part of this lawsuit. Not at all. This thing is, what, 400 pages long, and the EPA basically is charged with failing to follow the federal rules. Yeah, it's a very significant lawsuit, and uh, if it were to go to the merits, it would potentially have significant consequences for how pesticides are administered in the nation. In this lawsuit, what they're charging is that there are 300 pesticides have violated the Endangered Species Act. Yeah, three to 400 different pesticides are identified, over 200 different species are identified, You know, if you do the permutations, you could be talking about 80,000 combinations. And by my best guess, this lawsuit suggests that about 27,000 different analyses are needed. Well, the EPA knows its own rules. How could they have, you know, not followed them for this long? I don't think the question here is how could EPA have not complied with the law. They did comply with all their responsibilities under the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, Rodenticide Act. And in fact, this lawsuit explicitly says it's not about FIFRA. It says it's about the Endangered Species Act. The concern being raised in the complaint is that the Center for Biological Diversity simply believes what EPA is already doing is not enough. And that layer of analysis is that they should have gone to other federal agencies and and asked them how it was affecting endangered species. Yes, and as President Obama joked in his State of the Union address, it could be both the uh, National Marine Fisheries Service and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, depending on which uh, species you might be talking about. I understand that this is not the first time that the EPA has been sued on this issue and sued successfully. That's true. There have been other lawsuits brought by the Center for Biological Diversity involving pesticides and other species. It happened with the California gnat catcher. It also happened with Pacific Northwest Salmonid species. And the environmental groups won. Or a settlement was achieved, yes, sir. Given that the EPA has settled in past cases regarding this, how come they have to face yet another lawsuit? Well, one thing that's important to keep in mind is that the Environmental Protection Agency is not the ultimate authority on threatened and endangered species. The consulting agencies are the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the National Marine Fisheries Service. And those are the agencies whose whose roles are at issue. And the question that's then raised in this lawsuit is whether EPA had a duty and should have gone back and talked to those agencies about the consequences of the pesticides for these given species. Um, My sense is that this lawsuit can have extraordinary broad implications. I was reading uh, something that uh, the executive director of the Kansas Corn Growers Association said, and he says, this is more of an assault on modern agriculture than it is about protection of endangered species. It's true that this lawsuit could have very significant nationwide consequences and could indeed lead to a significant rewrite of the way that many of our pesticides are used. One of the things to understand about the Endangered Species Act is it was meant to be sort of the the Noah's Ark of environmental law. It was supposed to be the last resort and it was a way when originally created for federal agencies to take a real careful look at their proposed actions and evaluate them with respect to individual species before they took them. And one thing about the law here is that it adopts the precautionary principle. It says, above all else, do no harm to these endangered species. And in some case law, it talks about erring in favor of the species when you have concerns. 
but what you're seeing here is is the continued evolution of the Endangered Species Act and the use of the Endangered Species Act sort of as a, a policy proxy and a surrogate for other things. And in this case, it could potentially function as something of a surrogate for FIFRA reform, the Federal Insecticide, Fungicide, Rodenticide Act. And by way of example, let me take you back to the lawsuit in the Pacific Northwest. The biological opinion that ultimately got issued found that some of the pesticides were likely to jeopardize the continued existence of some of the salmon species. As a result, the National Marine Fisheries Service imposed some additional conditions on how those pesticides could be used, such as wind speed restrictions. When the wind is blowing higher than a certain rate, you shouldn't be applying the pesticides. They put restrictions on moisture that said when it's really wet, it's likely that that pesticide will have an easier time of getting into the watershed, so you can't use it then. They created fish mortality reporting requirements, and they created habitat monitoring requirements. All of that grew out of the Endangered Species Act and were additional requirements that went above and beyond what was previously being required under the FIFRA terms. So take a a loyally position. If you were a government attorney uh, trying to defend against this lawsuit, what would be your response? Every case is very fact-specific and requires you to take a really good look at the record. And the record is an administrative record. It's the whole history of what the federal government has done on a given issue. And barring having that set of documents in front of me, I'm not sure what position I'd take right now. But I can say, looking at it, yeah, I'd be nervous. Well, Mr. Rizzardi, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Bruce, it was really wonderful talking with you. Keith Rizzardi is an attorney in West Palm Beach, Florida. His blog is called The ESA Blog, B-L-A-W-G. It's time now to open our mail. Lots of listeners applauded our conversation with scientist David Suzuki, calling our interview about his vision of the world and our future stunning, powerful, galvanizing, and sobering. Jim Francis wrote on our Facebook page, Finally, a voice of sanity to remind us that we are overpopulated and getting more so. David Suzuki's comparison of human demands on the Earth to the exponential growth of bacteria in a test tube brought back memories for Stephen Underwood of Ormond Beach, Florida. As I tried to educate my high school biology students for over 32 years, it is um, not that our planet does not have enough resources. We have too many people. Until we decrease this population, we will continue to use up our finite resources. We have the choice to control this population before nature does. And I don't think that mankind would like nature's methods of controlling the human population. Many of our listeners found our investigative report on the endocrine-disrupting effects of pesticides on sex organs and sexual orientation disturbing and fascinating. Connie Dodson wrote, If atrazine has the effects you reported on frogs, and frogs, rats, and humans have the same sex hormones, this is a real problem. Too many male baby frogs is one thing, but too many feminized men is a problem. Some listeners asked, what about these chemicals' effects on female sexual development? Good question. And, well, so far there's not much science in this area. But as gynecologist Deborah Ravasia wrote from Spokane, Washington, women have symptoms of high levels of estrogen exposure, too. In this case, she cited breast cancer has increased 30% in the last 30 years. The age of onset of menses is younger in the USA than in other countries. And she notes that the obesity epidemic has correlated with the rise of the hormone disruptors in our food chain. Well, love us or hate us, we always try to give you food for thought, and we're glad to hear from you. 
Our address is comments at LOE.org. Comments at LOE.org. Or call our listener line. That's 1-800-218-9988. 1-800-218-9988. Or click on over to our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. Just ahead, an international film festival where forests come in first. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. And from Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Bruce Gellerman. Here's something that might surprise you. It certainly surprised scientists. The world's freshwater lakes, streams, ponds, and swimming holes store and release immense amounts of climate-changing greenhouse gases, especially methane, which is one of the most potent. Scientists found a lot more of it than they expected, and their discovery is in the latest edition of Science Magazine. John Downing is one of the co-authors of the article. He's a limnologist at Iowa State University in Ames. And, Professor, welcome to Living on Earth. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to talk about this. So what's a limnologist? A limnologist is a scientist uh, that studies inland waters, uh, continental waters, lakes, ponds, rivers, and streams. Well, for this study for science, you studied a lot of them. I think it was 400, yeah, 474, I think, is the number that we finally ended up with. A large number of systems across the world, but there are millions of lakes and ponds, and those are hopefully representative of them. So what did you find? You, you, you were looking for what, specifically? So we were trying to see how much methane, a really important greenhouse gas, might be emitted by inland waters because it hadn't been included in really any global budget. So where does the methane in freshwater bodies come from? Basically, decomposition of uh, organic matter that flows into them or organic matter that's created within them. So you found that freshwater bodies of water have a lot of methane stored in them and that they're releasing a lot of it. How much are we talking about here? Well, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around the numbers because they're usually measured in things like petagrams, which is kind of an immense amount of material. But it's equivalent to about 25% of all the carbon that's taken up and sequestered by terrestrial environments worldwide. And terrestrial environments is land environments of which these lakes and ponds are a part of. Right. Global ecologists have sort of divided the world into three big chunks, and one of them is the ocean, another is the continents, and the other is the atmosphere. What we've been finding over the last four years or so is that when we consider the lakes, the wet part or the aquatic part of the continental mass, um, they are so much more active than any other piece of the real estate on the planet. So, Professor, how much of the world's uh, surface is freshwater? It looks to be about 2.8 to 3% right now. About five years ago, the estimate was about 1.5% of the land surface made up of lakes and uh, ponds. So how is it that uh, we didn't know where, I guess, half the world's freshwater was before not too long ago? 
A group of scientists and I uh, working at uh, the National uh, Center for Ecological Analysis and Synthesis put together uh, a lot of very exacting uh, analyses of aerial and satellite photos and began to find that there were many more small systems, uh, small lakes and ponds than anyone had suspected. So to quote former President Bush, you misunderestimated these lakes. Well, I didn't. Um, I was pretty convinced that it would be there, as was David Basviken and Lars Tronvik and the other scientists who worked on this project. So what we failed to do, really, was to consider a piece of that global budget. When you talk about a global carbon budget, you're talking about the amount of carbon that's kind of stored and, and uh, released. That's right. And it's really important to know what all the major sources and sinks of carbon are. It's sort of equivalent to running your own household budget, calculating all your sources of income and expenses, and forgetting that the insurance company takes out an amount out of your account every month that's equal to 25% of your household income. Kind of a big mistake. Even a limnologist uh, would know enough economics to make that work better. So what happens now with this information? How does it help us or does it hurt us? Well, I think uh, it points up a few things. It makes me feel as if we really need to pay closer attention to these inland waters and what they're doing because they are so active in everything they do that the fact that they may be only 3% of the land area of the planet is less important than their great activity. So paying attention to inland waters is very important. And then I'd say if we've made this kind of an error here, what other pieces of this puzzle are missing? What else might we need to fill in? And we should be paying attention to environments that are highly carbon active, even though they may be small. So good and bad things come from small packages. Yeah, that's in fact true. I mean, they are small, but they're mighty. The little farm ponds of the world probably bury or sequester as much carbon every year as the world's oceans. And the lakes and sort of moderately sized water bodies of the earth sequester four times the carbon uh, that's buried by the ocean every year. So we have to look for not just big and obvious uh, sources and sinks of carbon, but look at some of those that may be small but highly active. Professor Downing, I was looking at uh, your webpage, and you quote Thoreau. Uh, yeah, I've got it right in front of me. It's one of my favorites. It goes, A lake is the landscape's most beautiful and expressive feature. It is Earth's eye, looking into which the beholder measures the depth of his own nature. Thoreau's a hero, of course, of mine, and as he is most ecologists. It's Earth's eye, and, but I'm wondering um, now with your research if it's uh, Earth's black eye. Not at all. We shouldn't ever consider that lakes are bad. The rates that were measured by Bastviken and this crew of scientists from around the world, um, these rates of methane emission are natural and have been there a long time. Um, maybe if we have a black eye, it's because we haven't paid attention to some of the Earth's most carbon-active environments, and we need to be doing that. Well, Professor Downey, it was a real pleasure. I really appreciate it. Oh, what a pleasure for me to talk about this work. Thanks for asking me. It's that time of year when Hollywood puts on the glitz and glamour. Academy Award season. But forget the Oscars. In New York City, they're rolling out the green carpet for the first International Forest Film Festival. The festival kicks off the United Nations International Year of the Forest. It's a series of events designed to raise global awareness about the forests of the planet. 
Over 160 films were submitted in six categories, and here now with the envelopes is Jan McAlpine. She's one of the three judges and director of the UN Forum on Forests. Ms. McAlpine, welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. So let's first talk about the UN International Year of the Forest. What will you be doing to raise awareness? We have a global launch, which will take place on the 2nd of February in New York at UN headquarters and uh, with some very eminent people. And then interspersed with those speakers will be film clips from the International Forest Film Festival. Now, why have a film festival? And by the way, what's the name of the award for your film festival? Well, you know, we're welcome to accept ideas for the name of the award. Well, um, maybe you should call them the Woodies. <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> maybe, I don't know, the Green Award. We'll see. We'll have to come up with something good, won't we? Oh, well, it's a tree. you got to call it the yeah. Big Green. <laughs> the Big Green. That's great. I like it. Okay, you can be part of our brainstorming team. Now, there's one film in recognition of the inspiration and impact that an individual can make on the world that won a special jury award from you. It's called The Man Who Stopped the Desert. Tell me about this film. It's just an amazing film about a man in Burkina Faso. He was somewhat successful in working in the marketplace, had a business, but he decided that he wanted to go back and farm. And when he did, he looked at indigenous farming methods and he figured out how to use those methods to improve the soil, but he also planted trees in order to create a break for the wind because that area is very much drylands and was fast desertifying. And he actually has had a huge impact throughout the region and now, I think, throughout the world. Thanks to his work, vast moonscapes of desert land have been transformed into fertile, life-giving soil. Crops have been planted. Forests have regrown. And the people have returned. That's a remarkable story of perseverance and adversity. It's a very compelling film. But why did you choose it? Why did you select it to be an award winner? Well, I work for the United Nations Forum on Forests, and one of the things the forum insisted is that we have to look at trees outside of forests as being as important as large expanses of forests. And... What was most impressive here was recognizing the role that trees have even in drylands. Also, the year of the forest is celebrating forests and people. And this is a great example of a contribution by one person who made a significant difference. You had a category of living forests, and the winner of that was Kingdom of the Forest. Here's a clip from the film now. Seduction. Drama. Danger. And deceit unfold in the kingdom of the forest. This film, as you heard, is just amazing. It it really shows how important each creature is and how uh, much each creature depends on the other. It's a beautifully filmed uh, movie. It also has a terrific storyline, and it explains uh, the importance of forest and ecosystem in a way that you can't capture in words, and my words are really poor equivalent for this kind of story. Now, the winner in the shorts category was Nam Tu, Man of the Soil. Now, there's no narration, but here's a bit of the soundtrack. It's a wonderful movie. First of all, I really enjoyed watching a film with 
no voiceover. When judging the film, a lot of the films we saw, people were talking too much, and the story was often much more told through the visual, uh, visual story. And in this case, they didn't. They showed this man who basically lives in the forest, and he is going and picking fruit and making soup or stew, and it's just this beautiful, almost like a dance. Uh, about his interaction and his knowledge of his own backyard. It's really beautifully done. You know, I liked one of the finalists in the short category that didn't make it to winner. It, this is the one produced by Greenpeace, and it starts off with a family. They're sitting in their living room. They're watching a nature documentary on TV about sharks. The white shark has a body language of its own, which we're only beginning to recognize. This inquisitive shark uses its particular... All of a sudden, bulldozers roll up, chainsaws start roaring, and the family's living room is smashed to smithereens. Not exactly your typical film festival fare. No, but we had a huge range of films, and, and some of them were, like that one, uh, really great. Scary, isn't it? Having your home destroyed around you. But your home can be rebuilt. Ours has taken thousands of years to grow. It was very hard to pick the finalists. The judges had a terrible time because a lot of these films should have won. Uh, That's a great example of a terrific story and and very vivid storytelling. And uh, you can tell me, are your eyes a little tired after 160 films? (laughs) Yeah, my whole holidays were spent night and day watching them, but it was fun. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Jan McAlpine. Thank you. Jan McAlpine is the director of the UN Forum on Forests and a judge of the International Forest Film Festival, which was sponsored by the Jackson Hole Wildlife Film Festival. To learn more about the award-winning films and a link to see some of them, check out our website at LOE.org. And now we travel from forests to seas. Elephant seals spend at least two-thirds of the year far out at sea. They only appear on shore to breed, seeming clumsy and out of place. But elephant seals are at least as formidable on land as in water. Writer Mark Seth Lender saw the seals on the California Channel island of San Miguel. Blumbering down the strand, the elephant seal comes eyes wide and his head in the air. Females beneath his care and command are his wealth. He will defend and defy all who try to take them from him by the thunder of his voice, by threat of harm, by his will and his three long tons. The elephant seal, a creature like no other. Even his name is a misnomer. No flappable ears, no ears we can see at all, no trunk. What grows pendulous in the middle of his huge face is more like a fighter's bulbous nose, nor does he sport tusks. But the folds of his skin say pachyderm, and hereabouts, surely he is the biggest. Four long months, without nourishment of any kind, elephant seal lies on the beach and sleeps, while the cove about him roils with life and sound. Snorts and coughs and blowing noses of the pups, coarse growls of mates, a newborn begging for the teat, screaming like a broken piccolo. 
Elephant Seal ignores them all. Only to the occasion will he rise. Having done with nursing and mothering, quietly, while her pup sleeps, one of Elephant Seal's females begins her escape toward the sea. A young bull, smooth of skin and dark and sure, sees his chance and comes to pursue what the old bull claims for his own. Eyes wide as an elephant in must, elephant seal wakes with a roar. Chest proud, he charges the foe, sounding his song of war. In close, all tooth and gaping maw they tear and slash and puncture, red trails of spittle and foam. The slap of bulk on bulk, mass against bone. Dusk. The female lies with young bull, there in a leeward shallow, sheltered by a great stone, rising like a new throne. Elephant seal, gouged and gray, lies exhausted, part of his regal nose torn away. Dawn. The cove is quiet. Even the air is still. Elephant seal wakes in all his cranky majesty, beachmaster only in name. He will leave now for the far-off shore and never reappear. Not here, not anywhere. He glomps and flumps his laborious way to the sea, and gathers what greatness remains, and goes forward, and goes on. Behind him, he leaves his mark, a wake made of sand that will last only till the tide comes in and wipes it away. Saltmarsh Diary, a collection of Mark Seth Lender's writings on wildlife, comes out in March. To see photos of the elephant seals, go to our website, LOE.org. And before we go... Here are some more of Mark's recordings from the elephant seal colony on San Miguel Island. Females and pups call out while bulls clap their flippers to fend off other males. on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Bobby Bascom, Eileen Belinsky, Ingrid Lobet, Helen Palmer, Jessica Lee Smith, Ike Shreeskandaraja, Mitra Taj, and Jeff Young. With help from Sarah Calkins, Sammy Souza, and Nora Doyleberg. Our intern is Wynn Tucker. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lurish-Dean composed our themes. And you can find us anytime at LOE.org. And while you're online, check out our sister program, Planet Harmony. Planet Harmony welcomes all and pays special attention to stories affecting communities of color. Log on and join the discussion at MyPlanetHarmony.com. And don't forget to check out the LOE Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Bruce Gilderman. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners. The Ford Foundation, the Town Creek Foundation, the Oak Foundation, supporting coverage of climate change and marine issues. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, 
dedicated to the idea that all people deserve a chance to live a healthy, productive life. Information at GatesFoundation.org And Pax World Mutual Funds Integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.